this week on the Back Table Podcast. It's one surgery that makes a big impact in our patients' lives. Uh, it's one of the most common surgeries that we do as otolaryngologists or pediatric otolaryngologists. So it's a very big change you can provide for your patients. And I've gotten many emails from surgeons all across the United States who have seen my talks at CME courses who have switched and they email me thanking me. I think there's a whole city in Oregon, Bend, Oregon, where all the otolaryngologists have switched to intracapsular and it's, you know, just changed their lives. They'll have to uh, worry about causal bleeds in the middle of the night. And so it's never too late to change. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Smith & Nephew is committed to embracing the power of tomorrow with a broad range of innovative ENT solutions, with products ranging from proprietary coblation technology devices to the two-list system for in-office tympanostomy procedures and epistaxis solutions, Smith & Nephew's portfolio fits seamlessly into the OR or office settings. Smith & Nephew's areas of focus in ENT include laryngeal, adenotonsillectomy, turbinate reduction, epistaxis, and in-office tympanostomy. Learn more at smithnephew.com. Products may not be available in all markets because product availability is subject to the regulatory and or medical practices in individual markets. Now, back to the show. My name is Gopi Shah, and I'm a pediatric ENT. I have a very awesome guest today. I have Dr. Kevin Huo. He's a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing at Children's Hospital of Orange County in California. Kevin completed medical school and residency in otolaryngology at the University of California, San Francisco. He pursued his fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. And Kevin is here today to talk to us about intracapsular tonsillectomy in children. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, good morning, Dobie. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Thanks for coming on. So I want you to first tell us how you got into pediatric ENT. Yeah, it's actually a, a fairly long story that I'll try to distill yeah. <laughs> a little bit. So as as you mentioned, I am practicing at Children's Orange County. Uh, it's about 10 minutes from Disneyland, just to Oregon, everyone. I'm a SoCal native. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And actually, you know, I was born with a large lymphatic malformation involving wow. my neck and my larynx. And that's actually how I became interested in pediatric otolaryngology from a very, very early age. Um, I had a tracheostomy, I had a gastrostomy tube. So I've been kind of in the business since I was a baby. I remember in first grade when, you know, you write about what you want to be when you grow up. I actually wrote, I want to be a pediatric otolaryngologist, spelled correctly. Wow, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. So you have a whole different perspective when it comes to taking care of patients and families as a pediatric otolaryngologist. Absolutely. I tell, I tell families and parents that, you know, I was kind of put here to do this. It's, you know, my calling to do this. So That's awesome. That's great. And so you're California native, all your training's there, and you're at Orange County. Tell us a little bit about your practice. Yeah, so, you know, Children's Hospital of Orange County is tertiary standalone pediatric children's hospital. Uh, we are a level one trauma center as well. 
and we are affiliated with uh, the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. So we do have residents from their otolaryngology residency program rotate through. So it's kind of a academic um, children's pediatric uh, center, I would say. That's great. And um, is you, so we're going to talk about intracapsular tonsillectomy. And as a pediatric otolaryngologist, whether you're in a general practice or like you were, you know, 10 people deep, academic center, we're all doing tonsils, um, probably 50 to 70% of our cases, I would say. Would you agree to that, Gavin? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I always tell people- what, what, Do you have like a niche though? That might, by the point is, I just, yeah. uh, do you have like a, a, a niche or, you know, uh, something that you love other right. than the tonsils and the tubes, which we all love? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I didn't do a fellowship to be a tonsil expert, right? <laughs> so um, <laughs> my my interest is actually in pediatric thyroid surgery. Um, so I do all of the thyroid surgery at Chalk and all the head and neck masses. So nice. that's kind of that's my awesome. interest. Cool. All right, so we're gonna talk about uh, intracapsular tonsillectomy uh, in children today, you know, just to kind of give you my exposure to it. Um, I did my residency at Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia, and our pediatric rotation was at the DuPont Nemours Hospital in Delaware. And so this was probably the mid to later 2008, 2009, 2010, when I did my pediatric rotations. And uh, we were doing some intracapsular tonsillectomies at that at the DuPont group there with uh, Dr. Riley, Jim Riley, Dr. Diane Shaw. Um, and so that was sort of my main exposure. And then I did my fellowship in Dallas at UT Southwestern. And, you know, since I've been doing mostly extracapsular, that's just, you know, what we did. So I have a, you know, it's just been a while, but I wanted to bring this to the forefront because there's, I think, more people transitioning to it. And so I wanted to kind of pick your brain about sort of, you know, why you do it, uh, who you do it for and all that. So tell us first about intracapsular time select me, because pa- parents also ask now too, because there's more and more information about the intracapsular versus a quote traditional. Yeah, so just a quick summary on intracapsular tonsillectomy. It's basically involving removing all of the tonsil and leaving a little bit of tissue behind and trying to leave the capsule intact. And the principle of it is by leaving a little bit of tissue behind, you don't expose the muscles of the pharyngeal wall uh, and you don't expose the large, larger caliber vessels that are more lateral. And so the hope is that you leave almost a biological dressing uh, over overlying the pharyngeal wall. So we've seen that it's been, you know, much less painful for our patients and it's lowered our risk of post-tonsillectomy hemorrhage as well. And so that's kind of the main premise for intracapsular tonsillectomy because we know, you know, most kids now when we're doing tonsillectomies go be it's because of OSA um, right. or sleep disorder breathing. And it's really the mass of the tonsil uh, that you're trying to remove. And you know, intracapsular tonsillectomy does accomplish that. So is this something that you're doing for all ages? Like, is this, you know, for pretty much anybody that needs a tonsillectomy for sleep disordered breathing or OSA, regardless of size, you're going to do an intracap? Yeah. So, you know, my practice goes up to around age, you know, 18, 19. And for all my patients, this is my go-to operation. It's probably... 90 to 95 percent of all tonsils I do are intracapsular tonsillectomy. Who are the ones that, who's the five percent that you're thinking to do an extra cap? Are those like recurrent strep, tonsil stones, or you know, do the infection kids also do okay with an intracap? 
Yeah, so the 5%, I would say that I don't do intercap on are the really rare cases. Those are like your PFAPA kids, your PANDAS kids, um, you know, post, you know, solid organ transplant when you're ruling out post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. Uh, but for recurrent tonsillitis and even tonsil stones, I think it's a great operation. You know, the recent data shows that uh, people who have undergone intercapsular tonsillectomy actually have a reduction in the number of uh, tonsil infections and, and at equivalent rate to a total or traditional tonsillectomy. And so I used to be more kind of shy about doing intercapsular for recurrent tonsillitis, but now it's my go-to for those patients. I will give parents option. I'll tell them, you know, here's the risks of intracapsular, here's the risks of a total or extracapsular tonsillectomy, but I'll kind of encourage them to choose the intracapsular operation. Yeah. I remember kind of my initial when I was uh, training, um, I had an attending that would all, was also doing it for current or chronic strep. And, and his whole thought point was, well, you're opening the crypts up. You're opening the crypts. And I remember thinking, does that? And then you know, I get out and practice, I'm doing uh, mostly traditional extra cap, and you're still going to have a handful of kids that get strep still, you know? Um, and so it's hard to say if one method's really better than the other, especially because indications I find for, you know, infection can sometimes be softer anyways. Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about it, it'll be like when you, when we do adenoidectomy for chronic sinusitis yeah. or adenoiditis, you're not doing a total adenoid or extra cap no. adenoid, right? Like, you're right. basically doing, you know, an intracapsular adenoidectomy, you know, so to That's speak, a good right? Point. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting to bring up your experience as a resident because, you know, Dr. Riley was one of the first ones to kind of adopt the intracapsular approach that Dr. Peter Kotai, you know, wrote yeah. about. And he was one of the uh, early proponents along with Dr. Kotai. So uh, it's interesting you had that experience as a resident. Yeah. So the DuPont group, they published papers as well, because I think the big concern, you know, is like regrowth, right? Like, what is the percentage of regrowth? And they looked at their data and they also looked at, you know, the other factors such as pain and, you know, time to PO and, and bleeding. And I think the regrowth rate, uh, <laughs> I think is like less than 1%, maybe 1%, one, 1% to 2% at most. Um, and so, in terms of, you know, some people would say, well, regrowth is my big concern, especially the one people, if, for those of us that are still doing traditional, is there an age where you're like, hey, you know, this child is three. If I do an intercap for sleep disordered breathing, are they going to have like a little bit of regrowth that could cause issues when they're six? I mean, do you ever, is that a silly concern or? How, no. Because we it, think that, yeah. it, you know, proliferates, uh, the tonsil tissue, lymphoid tissue will proliferate. <laughs> Between age two to six, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right, though. We have we have data on that. So, you know, the early data for intracapsular tonsillectomy, a lot of it was from Europe, was from Sweden. And they had really varied regrowth rates, you know, from anywhere from 1% to like 12%, I saw in one paper. Uh, one difference uh, about that data over from Europe is a lot of those countries when they do an intracapsular tonsillectomy, they're just going up to the pillars. They're not going all the way uh, to the capsule. So as you expect, those those um, populations might have more regrowth. In our group, we've seen a regrowth rate that's around less than 1%, but the data does show that the younger you are, the more likely you are to have regrowth. 
right? Because of what you said, yeah. it proliferates at that age. And so, you know, when I counsel parents of children, usually under the age of four, three or four, I will tell them there's a little higher rate of regrowth. I'll quote them actually a 3% rate of regrowth. Uh, my other patients will say, you know, 1% or less. And, you know, it's a, it's a similar rate of regrowth to risk of bleeding for total or extra capsule. So, you know, you kind of weigh those two different uh, risks. And I would much rather do a revision tonsillectomy at, you know, 8 a.m. in the morning yeah. uh, than a bleeding tonsil at 2 a.m. trying to get an airway and, you know, having yeah. a, a three-year-old bleeding in my ER, you know? So yeah. I'll take that any day of the week, you know? Yeah. Well, we kind of consider two questions for you. Um, one is if you do have a child that you did intercap on that you have to go back for, for, you know, some regrowth, are you doing intercap again or do you switch techniques at that point? Yeah, and then the second question is, I wanted to get a little bit more into like the pain and recovery after an intercap. You ask great questions, Dopey. No wonder you're the host of the podcast. Because I'm sitting here like, what are, <laughs> no, one of my uh, partners came on, uh, not came on, but one of my uh, partners a uh, couple of years younger than me started, um, at old partners when I was in Dallas, um, Stephen Chorney. He trained at CHOP and, you know, he's, he's so brilliant. He's wonderful. Came in, you know, was like, no, this is, I'm going to do intercap. And, he, you know, he, he's such a scientific evidence-based mind, right? Like he's... He saw in practice, he knows the data, and that's what he was doing. And yet the rest of us were still doing, you know, extra cap. And I remember getting out of fellowship, being like, well, this is what we do here. So this is what I'm going to do because this is how we know how to handle this is our algorithm. And so these are just the questions because I'm like, do I need to like, am I, am I a dinosaur now? Like, what do I need to do? So that's why I have these questions there, for there, you. There's so much unpacked there. <laughs> but, but we'll, we'll, we'll start with uh, your about the being a dinosaur. What are we unpacking, Kevin? <laughs> There's so much impact about data, about yeah. you know, surgeons following data. But we'll, let's go back to your original question, which is okay. Uh, what do you do if you have to revise an intracapsular tonsillectomy? And so I've done probably around five to ten of these. Um, yeah. And so our rate's about less than one percent. But when I when I have my first regrowth. This is early yeah. in my career, and I was like, oh, my gosh, am I doing the right thing, right? Right. And so for those patients, I did a bovi tonsillectomy. I did a traditional extracapsular tonsillectomy. And then my partner, Nguyen Pham, uh, said to me once, he's like, Kevin, why don't we just do this again? Do another yeah. intracapsular. I'm like, huh, okay. So that's what we do now. So I just do another uh, intracapsular tonsillectomy. And your colleague, uh, you know, Stephen Jorney, like, he's absolutely right about following data. You know, there's very few things in surgery and otolaryngology where we have data. There's actually randomized controlled trials. Actually, one of my old attendings, uh, Dr. K. Kane at Lucille Packer, he did a randomized controlled trial on extra versus intracapsular using cobalator. And so we have the data, we have meta-analyses on this that show improve recovery, decrease post-op morbidity, et cetera. And so I think you're not a dinosaur, but, you know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, times are there. it's time to keep out with some of the with this data. Times um, are changing. Yeah, times are changing. And I guess, you know, if you do, are doing a revision intracap, it makes sense because the kids are usually a bit older. So that sort exactly. of regrowth period that we worried about, you know, 
isn't maybe as much. I mean, I think uh, there was a, p- a point where I think, you know, I was doing an intro camp. I would think about it for my young kids, you mm-hmm. know, the under two um, that have really bad OSA, you know, that 15 month old for some reason that, you know what I mean? But then I'm like, well, uh, is this going to regrow or my cardiac kids on the aspirin? And then it's, you know, and so it's just like, well, why aren't, why am I not just kind of switching over completely? But when you explain, tell me about the post-start recovery, because on the other hand, and again, this is where I'm so excited you're here, because it's like, well, do you want your kid to have a potential for a tonsillectomy all over again? Is the recovery like, you know, post-op day three to seven to 11, is it going to be a second bump of the pain? All that kind of stuff. So tell me about all that. Yeah, so post our our patients have very minimal discomfort. We put them on Tylenol Motrin for 24 hours, and then kind of as needed after that. Most of my tonsils I do on Thursday or Friday, all my kids go back to school Monday or Tuesday the next week. We start them on a regular diet post on day zero. They, I just tell them not to eat sharp food, like Doritos or tortilla chips yeah. uh, for the first week. And they, they, do, they do really, really well, you know. My son had uh, a tonsillectomy right before COVID back in February 2020. And I asked my friend to do intracapsular. And, you know, my son did great. That's awesome. Because I would tell you for the traditional extra cap, I, I would say my patients were on Tylenol Motrin for several days, even up to a week after, uh, around the clock. Um, you know, the alternating every three in terms of school, I'd say probably not earlier than day seven. And if yeah. there's a second bump, they might be out a little bit longer. Absolutely, and that's what that's what yeah. I see with my 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 tonsillectomy, my bony tonsillectomy. Like that's exactly right. You get that second yeah. bump in pain day seven or eight. I didn't know about that. Toby came in attending. <laughs> you get you get the phone calls, right? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Well, so for your intracap, tell me about the phone calls in the clinic. I mean, uh, meaning when do the patients call and what are they, they calling for? Don't. <laughs> they don't. Hey, no, I'm serious. And, and it's interesting because the other thing we didn't talk about, Toby, is narcotics, right? That's huge, right? Um, yeah. I honestly, I don't tell anyone this, but I don't even know where my triplicate pad is right now. I, oh, I, yeah. I don't either. Start, I don't yeah. I, Never. I haven't prescribed that. Even with traditional, I'm just right, saying, right, saying right. I haven't prescribed triplicates or narcotics in a year, more than five years. Right. But a lot of yeah. people still do. A lot of people still do. Yeah. When you go to the meetings now, you, there's all those, you know, panels on post-op, pediatric tonsil, pain, you know, things like that. And, you know, they rarely talk about intracapsular tonsillectomy. And so yeah. I think that's a, that's a big, big aspect of what intracapsular can't offer. Yeah. And so you said that at the conferences, we're not talking about tonsillectomy intracap as much right now. Yeah. You know, I think at the last academy meeting in Philadelphia, there was a panel, right, on, you know, how to manage pain after pediatric tonsillectomy. And, you know, the elephant in the room is intracapsular. You know, they're talking about all these other yeah. ways to reduce pain, uh, kind of motion alternating, uh, but they fail to talk about intracapsular. So I always raise my hand to talk about it. And then when yeah. you look at the latest clinical practice guidelines from our academy, they didn't mention intracapsular tonsillectomy once in the in the guidelines, but they did have an addendum this time, saying that intracapsular is is around. Like you can try it. We need quote more data uh, unquote. Um, but if you look at the guidelines in England and the UK, if you look at guidelines in France. It's on their national guidelines. Actually, the National Health Service and in the UK, they recommend intracapsular tonsillectomy. 
because wow. they have the data. They've looked at the data. And it's, well, it sounds like we have data too, because we have randomized control trials and meta-analysis. It just hasn't quite taken off. I yeah. Guess. Is, yeah. Would you I, agree with that? I mean, I, I would. I think, I think some of it has to do with the free thinking, independent spirit of, you know, Americans, you know, in general. And I think yeah. it, it takes a little time for any new innovation to, to spread. You know, yeah. when we looked at, I did my survey five years ago of ASPO uh, members, uh, American Society of Pediatric Orthopedics members, and I think only 20% were doing extra capsule. That was 2017, thereabouts. My guess is that it, it's higher than that now. I think probably 40%, I would hope, uh, by yeah. now. Um, but if you look at Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, he talks about the 20% being the the tipping point or the point at which diffusion increases at exponential rate. So, wow. uh, you know, after seeing that number, I was, I felt encouraged, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So in terms of, you know, techniques, so, you know, I know there's microdiv reader, there's the coblation device. What are the different techniques out there and what do you, what do you, what do you like to use? Yeah, I think the most most, the one that was earliest described by Dr. Colt, I was a microdebreeder. And that's what I initially learned uh, during my fellowship. Those and, bleed. Yeah, yeah, so they do. <laughs> They're not fun. It's, that's how I learned. I was like, what is this? It's kind of a bloodbath, right? So <laughs> yeah, you, it is. You, take a, you take a specially designed tonsil blade and you set it, I think, to 1500 RPM on a microdebreeder yeah. machine. And then you just go at it, right? The tonsil yeah. is a big polyp, right? So you just go yeah. at it. Uh, but what happens is it bleeds, and then you have to use a suction bovie to kind of cauterize yeah, the base. you're charring everything, yeah. So then, you know, by charring everything, you're almost, you know, defeating the purpose of reducing pain, right? You're, you know, because you, you can get the diffusion of thermal energy when you're trying to char the whole tonsil bed. So that's what I started with in practice, but I quickly changed to the coblader. Uh, my partner, Nguyen Pham, learned the Coblair method uh, during fellowship. We did the same fellowship, but he just <laughs> learned from someone else. And so <laughs> the Coblair is what I use now. You know, there's several wands that you can choose uh, to do an intercapsular tonsil. Like we, I, I use a ProSize uh, Max wand. The ProSize XP, I think, is a good one for beginners when I have residents. Uh, starting out with me, sometimes I'll, I'll reach for the ProSize XP. It's less aggressive. It? Okay. It's less aggressive. The active area is smaller than the ProSize Max. Okay. But, and so just a little bit slower. And I'm all yeah. about speed, you know, for, um, <laughs> for yeah. cons like me. So, and then the new product they have out uh, is the Halo Wand, uh, which is, which is very promising. You know, I've used it now for a few months. It's very promising. Uh, addition to the to the coblayer uh, system, and yeah. that that uses a different console. So for the old ones, a process XP or Max, I'll use a setting of seven uh, for okay. ablate and three uh, for coag, and I'll just start you know at the at the medial aspect of the tonsil. For the left tonsil, I'll hold the wand in my right hand, so kind of opposite of what you would do for a bowie, and then start from medial to lateral, and then basically you want the tonsil bed to look like a total tonsillectomy, except you have some tonsil tissue left, and that's kind of when you know you're you're done. So you're de you're definitely going more lateral than just the pillars. Correct. 
And, you know, when I think of tonsils, they're not just like, you know, round globes, like um, certain, I feel like there's front, like, you know, kind of some areas that are a little bit more that kind of frond out a little bit more lateral. And so you just have to know the plane that you're looking for to kind of know how deep you want to go. Like, what, yeah. what does it kind of look like? Does it look lacy? Like, um, somebody used to tell me that it should look a little bit lacy or something. Yeah. Like, so when you, you when you use a microdebrider, you start seeing more like, I guess, like lacier, thicker fibers. You know, yeah. when you use a cobayer, it's a little harder. I think it looks more, it looks more striated. You're not looking at muscle, but it starts to look more striated, more fibrous. You know, tonsil tissue itself is like squishy, soft, that, you know, that whitish stuff. Um, but when you're looking at more striated type tissue appearance, uh, then you kind of know uh, you're getting close to the capsule. And I always tell my residents, it's fine to leave a little bit of yeah. extra tonsil tissue, you know. I'd rather them do that than, you know, dig a hole into the pharyngeal wall. Yeah. And it's it's not rocket science. I know that's the most common question I get asked is, how do you know when you're done? Yeah. Any surgeon who's done enough, you know, total tonsillectomies, you kind of have a feeling. Like, when you get that scooped out concave appearance, you kind of know, like, all right, I'm done. And I would encourage... Uh, surgeons to follow their regrowth rate. You know, we always encourage surgeons to follow your bleed, bleed rate. rate. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to follow your bleed rate anymore. I'll tell you that. But you should follow your regrowth rate, and that will inform you on you know whether you're doing um, enough. Yeah. So just to kind of get a little bit more granular into the technique, one in terms of your preference, do you like a red rubber, not a red rubber, to lift up your soft palate? I do. I use two red rubber catheters, actually. Okay. I, I don't know if that's super I common. Use, yeah, no, I think I do two as well. Yeah. A lot of my partners uh, yeah, do one. Yeah, it just depends on the mouth. Yeah, a lot of my partners use one. Yeah, it just depends on yeah. what your exposure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I, I use one too. Some people don't, so that's yeah. why I ask. And then one, when, again, now this is uh, 10, 15 years later. So <laughs> with the co-blader, um, the way I had learned was literally you're just lopping it off. But what you're describing is with your wand lateral and just kind of taking it down, letting medial, it melt yeah. through medial the medial to lateral. Yeah. Medial to lateral. Medial to lateral. Okay. You tap it. You just keep on tapping. You literally keep on tapping that tonsil or kind of scoop that tonsil. Uh -huh. You don't want to stay on it too long because then you'll char it. Um, yeah. But you just tap, 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 and yeah. I mean, it's, a lot of people have have used a coblator for other things like. Uh, I know it's probably for JNAs or other nasal JNAs, masses. Yeah, yeah it's, it's yep. a similar thing, you know? Um, yeah, use the tip. How do you yeah. deal with clogging? Because tonsils are kind of, do they do they clog in the hole or is the precise suction hole bigger than like the yeah. uh, uh, the slower XP Yeah, no, wand? That, that's early on, that was a problem for me. <laughs> and the way I've eliminated that is you have to remember you have to turn up your suction uh, we have a striker Neptune, and we turn it up to, I put it at like 250 to 300. And so the suction has to be pretty high. Your saline flow has to be pretty brisk. Okay. And it's all reliant on that repetitive tapping motion, just not staying on tissue too long. And then uh, in my other hand, I hold a suction, actually. You can do a herd. Oh, you can okay. do a herd okay, or suction. Okay, I was going to ask you, is it a herd? Okay. Yeah, so mo the, you, you can start with a herd. And that's what I first started with. But then one of my residents, who's now one of my partners, said, hey, why don't we 
hold a section out of hand. I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. So I can manipulate <laughs> the tonsil with the suction, and it suctions all that excess uh, sailing from the oral yeah. pharynx. So I hold a suction in my other hand, and then, yeah, it tends to work well. Like a, just a regular Yankar, like a tonsil, yeah. the metal tonsil Yankar yeah, suction? Yeah, the metal or? one. It's, I think Andrew's okay. tip, vascular suction, I think is the okay. correct name. But yeah, okay. some people hold a plastic <laughs> Yankar, too. I, I don't like those. I think they're too... Uh, big, kind of big. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of big. Okay, and so then let's say, do you then have to go over and um, coblate the whole area? You know how like sometimes yeah. you know when you do a bobby toss like me, then you're like, okay, you know, and you yeah. uh, sometimes need to start. Do you have to do that, or just what's bleeding? Do you do that to with vessels you may come across, yeah, or what is that? I actually coag. I actually coagulate the whole tonsil that remains the capsule. Okay, and uh, it doesn't take very long, but I think that. It might be why our regrowth rate is lower. Yeah. You know, similar to like when you're using a suction bobby on the adenoids, you just kind of like have a, a bed of char sometimes, and that's kind of what we have. You just use a coax setting on on the cobalt device. Okay. And okay. go over the whole bed. Okay. And so if you're somebody that's, you know, been practicing five to 15 years and you've been doing, because I would say, right, that's going to be majority of the people that haven't transitioned over. It sounds compelling enough in terms of post-op pain and recovery, in terms of bleeding, and even with regrowth, um, when you compare it to a potential post-op bleed and how difficult and complicated those can be. So if somebody is kind of interested, how should they start making that transition? Like, um, what do you recommend for that? Yeah, it's not hard to switch. I think it's never too late to to switch to intracapsular tonsillectomy. You know, funny story is when I first came into practice at Chalk, I joined, you know, a group of three other O-laryngologists. Uh, like I said, my partner, Nguyen Pham, had done a fellowship right before me, and so we started doing intracapsular together. And the uh, older partners who were in their 50s and 60s saw our post-op complications were much lower than theirs, lower bleed rates, didn't get the phone calls in the middle of the night. Um, our residents were happier. You know, they didn't have to come in to see tonsil bleeds. And so, you know, our senior partners just basically watched us do one or two in the OR, and then they started doing it, and they switched. Another one of my partners joined us three years ago. She's She had already been in practice uh, for several years, and when she first joined us, she's like, no, nah, I'm just gonna do, you know, Bowie, that's what I've been doing. And then yeah. she had a bleed. And then she's like, all right, and she switched. So it's not a hard operation to learn. You're basically like just ablating tissue. You know, you can watch videos. There's a lot of videos online of intercapsular tonsillectomy. I would invite anyone, if you want to come out, visit Disneyland and watch me do some tonsils. <laughs> you know, now in this post-COVID era, you know, we can we can do that again. You know, if you want to come watch me do something, I'm, you know, I'm happy to have anyone join me in the OR. That's awesome. What else am I missing? Am I missing anything else, Kevin, specific to intracap? Like, I know you, you said your patients go up to 18 to 19-year-olds. Is this becoming, uh, in the adult, uh, for adult patients, is intracap becoming more common as well? In I terms think of so. Tonsillectomy? Yeah, I yeah. think intracapsular is becoming more and more common in adults as well. I think definitely it's still more popular in the pediatric population. Something you yeah. mentioned earlier were tonsil stones. There was yeah. a big tonsil stone rage on TikTok 
uh, maybe a year ago, a lot of videos of people popping out of tonsil stones. So we started seeing a lot of adolescents with tonsil stones who wanted their tonsils out. And, you know, in the, in the old days, you would say, oh, absolutely not. I'm not going to take your tonsils yeah. out. Like, you know, get a water pick, you know, yeah. put on my antibiotics. Like, no, we're not taking tonsils out. And now I say, sure, let's do an intercapsular yeah. tonsillectomy. Um, we get rid of all the crypts, all the nooks and crannies. And, uh, you know, very minimal post-op discomfort. I'm not worried that, you know, they're going to bleed. Yeah. I've had pretty good success. I think it's a really good operation to offer uh, these, you know, teenagers, adolescents, you know, who come yeah. to your office. I've had people travel quite a, quite a long way to see me for it. Wow. What about the tonsils that are like one plus? Are those more difficult to do, um, or no, is it the same? You're just faster. kind of lifting that pillar up. You just kind of yeah, get, it's faster. You know, <laughs> it's I'll tell you, a... and, and the hard, the hardest ones to do goby are the um, more overweight, obese, adolescent uh, OSA patients who have really large fibrous tonsils. Those are wow. so tedious, and a lot of times, you know, when I'm doing it, I'm cursing. I'm saying, "Oh God, just give me my bovi," you know. Yeah. But I know that those are the patients who, who actually will come back with bleeds <laughs> after yeah. after yep. a total tonsillectomy. Um, yeah. And those are, are the patients who will have the most pain after surgery as well. So, you know, I think intercapsular for me has changed also my way of thinking, you know, and I'm more, it's almost changed the indications for tonsillectomy. You know, if I'm taking a kid to the OR for, you know, ear tubes, you know, revision ear tubes, let's say, right? And I'm going to do the yeah. adenoids and their tonsils are two plus and they snore. Like in the old days, maybe we would just do tubes and adenoids. Now I'm like, no, yeah. I'm going to do intercapsular tonsillectomy. I'm not worried they're going to bleed. It's not yeah. going to add much pain. And I know that kid, I won't have to take them back to OR in the future, you know, when the tonsil yeah. grows, you know? So it's changed kind of the thought process. Yeah. Uh, what about the kids that have been to the ED or hospitalized for like recurrent peritonsil abscess? For those kids, is intracap sufficient as well, or do you have to consider extra cap in that situation? Yeah, for recurrent peritonsil abscess, I would do extra caps or a total tonsillectomy. There's there was some really early data that you know some kids who had intracapsular tonsillectomy were more prone to peritonsil abscess. Uh, which I haven't seen, but I would definitely say that that is one indication for a total tonsillectomy is that recurrent peritonsillar abscess. Yeah. yeah. And then um, when you are at these conferences or talking to other people about intercap, what are some of the other concerns? Any other concerns or questions that you're like, oh, okay, um, I didn't, you know, th that's an issue, or you know, I guess when you put it that way, anything like that. Yeah, so the most common one I get, we touched on already, which is, you know, how do you know when you're done? You know, how do you know when you've taken enough tonsil tissue? Um, when talking to some of our international colleagues, they'll mention that the reimbursement is different for intercapsular tonsillectomy versus a total. And, you know, I had a fortune of training with Dr. Koltai, right, who, who described this in 2002. And he, he told me, he's like, Kevin, I, I call the intracapsular tonsillectomy for a reason, right? As opposed to tonsillotomy or partial tonsillectomy, because he wanted it to be, to be seen as equivalent to the traditional operation. Uh, but one question I have seen from international colleagues is that in some places, the reimbursement is different uh, wow. for a tonsillotomy or you know, partial wow. operation. 
Yeah. Well, as we round this out, um, any final pearls or thoughts specific to this? Yeah, I would just encourage everyone to to go for it. You know, I think, um, like I said, it's one surgery that makes a big impact in our patients' lives. Uh, it's one of the most common surgeries that we do as otolaryngologists or pediatric otolaryngologists. So it's a very big change you can provide for your patients. And I've gotten many emails from surgeons all across the United States who have seen my talks at CME courses who have switched and they email me thanking me. I think there's a whole city in Oregon, Bend, Oregon, where all the otolaryngologists have switched to wow. intracapsular and it's, you know, just changed their lives. They'll have to uh, worry about causal bleeds in the middle of the night. And so it's never too late to change. Yeah. It's, it's a good for the ER. It's good for the clinic staff. I mean, efficiency and cost, and, you know, when you're thinking about, about quality and the safety uh, metrics as well. Absolutely. Pretty much everybody. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. So if anybody wants to learn more about it, uh, how, how can they find you? Are you on any social media? I know LinkedIn, that's how I connected with you. Yeah, I'm not too active on social media professionally, uh, but you can always reach out to me. Uh, look me up at Char Children's Hospital uh, and reach out that way. And Kevin's paper from the Laryngoscope, it was 2020, looking at the intracapsular tonsillectomy. It's a good paper to check out. Um, I, I looked at that and I was like, oh, gosh, this is what Stephen Shorty <laughs> has been reading. I need to be reading this, my my partner, former partner. Um, and then it sounds like we all need to read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's tip, The Tipping Point. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's it's an important, uh, it's interesting how, the, how surgical innovation follows a lot of these other innovations in other parts of our society. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. For our listeners, thank you for stopping by. And I think it's a wrap. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.